0: 2 this this morning. Just in a brief review, remember in Genesis 1 we have this story of creation kind of on a global level of God creates all things. Then we come in chapter 2 verse 4 we see our little marker. These are the generations of. We know we have moved into a new section and so now we localize to the Garden of Eden and so <clears throat> the the purpose of things changes here just a little bit instead of the global story of creation locally to Eden and to God creating and forming Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathing into him the breath of life. And then he gives him these two trees, sacramental trees to serve him in his time in Eden. He gives him a mandate of cultivating and caring for Creation. And so this is where we have Adam. And this is where we find him this morning. As you heard the text read, we'll, we'll talk this morning a little bit about marriage and we'll talk about gender and roles <coughs> of gender. I know it can be a little, uh, I don't know, if controversial, whatever. It might be might hear different things, different words coming from different places. And this morning, my main emphasis is this, is I just want us to acknowledge and to realize and to celebrate the fact that God created marriage. And that God created gender, and with the gender, assigned specific rules and gave specific commandments and equipped that gender to fulfill those rules for His glory. Sometimes I think we get in our minds that we said the same thing with work, that that this stuff is an, an outcome of the fall, like work is a necessary evil because of the fall, or, or the, these kind of gender issues is a necessary evil because kind of fall. We see it is in God's created fabric, how he made the earth, what he intended, what was good, that marriage was, before it was ever a, a cultural norm or, or some sort of legal institution, it was created by God. The same thing with gender, before you think of it as any sort of um, culturally assigned idea, it was created by God. I don't pretend to act like the fall doesn't make these things more complex and more difficult as we walk through it and try to understand it and try to be gracious to others. And so I, I don't mean this morning to paint a picture of of a finger pointing and what idiots, but that we would see it is created by God for a purpose. It's made into the very fabric of creation, both this idea of marriage and of gender and the differing roles of gender for his honor and for his glory. Again, I won't go down the weeds into masculinity and femininity into narrow of an idea of, of what that is in the sense that there is some differing from culture, from era, whatever it might be. But before there's any cultural assignment, there was a created assignment by God. I hope as I'm speaking this morning and, and we look at marriage and the role of gender, primarily within marriage, but really beyond that as well, there'll be a word to those who are married to strengthen you and encourage you in your marriage. It would also be a word to those who are unmarried, who are single, not married yet. I think it's important that single people hear often about marriage and that it would inform your thoughts in kind of two ways. One, that would paint a picture of something that is to be desired and not something to, to be scared of because it causes you to give something up. Or in the other end spectrum, that marriage becomes such an idol for you that you don't have any sense of identity and calling and trusting in Lord and purpose outside of marriage. So kind of that you wouldn't desire it too little or desire it too much, in a sense. And that as we speak to to filling God's created image and purpose for us in the context of community and relationship. We will see it most intensely in marriage as we look at today, but it can be fulfilled in singleness as well, as the Lord would make clear in through the New Testament. And so don't tune me out if you're not married. But listen this morning, in God's good design in marriage and gender. So we come to this section of Genesis 2, and really, if you were to begin at Genesis 1 and just keep reading all the way to now, the beginning of, of our section today would be very striking. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. You know, what have we heard all along? He created, it was good, it was good, it was very good, it was good, it was good, it was good. We've seen this pattern kind of growing now all the way through. And so now we have Adam, and he's stuck in the paradise, in the perfect place. He's given the perfect garden, the perfect job, and and it all just seems great. And we get to this moment, and Moses then writes in this way to really grab our attention. As we come to sort of the the pinnacle of Genesis 2, in, in this creation of woman, in the bringing together of man and woman, that it was not good for man to be alone. And so it's not as if God created something poor or something bad, but it is still incomplete. And so he sees it, and so it catches our attention immediately. We see right there, it is not good that man should be alone. This idea of a partner, this idea of community. And then he continues, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Let's back up for a moment. We've already seen... God has already spoken about the creation of women in one sense, hasn't he? As you go back to Genesis chapter 1, let's flip back there just for a moment and we'll look at that. In verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, the God said, let us make man in our image, that's idea, the general idea for mankind, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, The first thing I just want to notice is we've already seen that women are created in the image of God. They are created in the image of God. They share equally in this image-bearing, just as male, as man does, female also shares completely in bearing that image. I think sometimes it's a little harder for us to grasp. We talked about it with the kids' catechism before, the, the question, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like ours. I think that helps us kind of understand how both in maleness and femaleness in are created as man and woman that we fully image our God. There's not a sense in which man somehow is closer to the image of God than woman is. And so you see in, 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 in dignity, in identity, in worth, they bear the image of God. We also see that they share in this cultural mandate, of of cultivating, of being fruitful and multiplying, and of entering into covenant with God, that is, of, of looking to the tree of life, looking to God as a source of their life, and being obedient to this prohibition, this obey and live, disobey, and die. And so they they enter into this covenant with God as well. So on this very beginning level, male and female, he created them in the image of God, sharing in this cultural mandate of cultivating and caring and sharing in uh, the mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, spreading God's image throughout the earth and spreading Eden then beyond the garden into the earth. They share in that in the image of God. And we see right from the beginning then that gender is built into the very fabric of creation. You you image God in your maleness, in your femaleness. Part of your identity in the image of God to understand who you are and how you are to image your God is bound up in your maleness and femaleness. It, It is in the created order I think there's also more than just a hint here in Genesis 1 before we go back to Genesis 2 of how we image God in relation to one another in community. It's interesting that God, that Moses here in verse 27 says so, or I'm sorry, in verse 26, then God said, let us make men in our image this is the only time in the Genesis account here where he uses this plural us and ours referring to the Trinitarian God let us make God in our image and then he creates male and female and we'll see how that, that works in reflecting the image of God in Trinity that it, it takes multiple people in community honoring and serving in distinct ways to fully image God. You have a father, son, and spirit. Same in essence, but distinct persons with distinct rules, carrying out a d- distinct function. And the same is true then with man and with women, that in community, with multiple people, in the marriage covenant, and really in the church covenant as well, in community is where you fully image your God. People sharing in an essence, and yet distinct in person, distinct in rule and function, coming together for God's honor, for God's glory, to accomplish his purposes. So back in Genesis 2 then, with this as our foundation, God says in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper who is fit for him. Kind of two words there to describe what he is going to create in woman. A helper and someone who is fit for him. Maybe your your text says suitable for him. I've done enough premarital counseling to know that on the surface, this can rub people the wrong, rub ladies especially, the wrong way. He created him a helper. And I think it's because, one, the translation isn't really helpful for us in grasping it it's not the idea of helper. Maybe you can picture like if we have a fellowship meal and we set up tables and you're carrying a table back and you're kind of holding it right in the middle and a little kid comes to help you and like grabs the back of it and basically just drags it down and at the end you're like oh, you're a good little helper. That's not the picture here. I I worked for a roofing company for uh, several years going through seminary and when I started, I was the helper so there's three or four people and by helper it just meant anything they don't want to do i do which basically just means i go down the ladder get the stuff and carry it up and so all day that you know where we need more tar paper i carry it up we need more nails i carry it up we're out of gatorade i go to the store and get it and carry up you know i was really part of the team you know it's just we don't want to do that that job stinks you're the helper However, after a few years of roofing and some people quitting and hiring new people, suddenly I became much more important. I was still working with them. I was still part of the team. But now I was much more than just go down the ladder and get something. I was fully participating in getting these shingles laid and this roof put in. So the, the, the word helper there is more towards that idea. <clears throat> it's actually used two main ways in the Old Testament, which is... Uh, helpful one it's used to describe Yahweh in his relationship to his people that he is their helper he is their strong helper he comes alongside of them the second way that it is used primarily is in a kind of a battle context of reinforcements of the battle is not going well reinforcements come the the help arrives and so it's the idea of a strong capable helper not a Oh, you're a good little buddy. Thanks for helping me, type of idea. So you make some a helper, someone who can come and make up what is lacking in someone else's strength. The other way described is someone who is fit or suitable. Again, there's some like odd takes on this, and it's not as if like the idea again of Adam's sitting there, we're parading ladies by, and he decides, oh, that one's fit for me. That one's to my liking. That one's suitable. The the literal translation is a a compound word, and it means like face-to-face or or like opposite him. Like opposite. So it's hard to totally get the idea, but in the end, it's kind of that idea of of a puzzle piece and another puzzle piece. And they're alike, and they're opposite, and they are fit for one another. They are suitable for one another. And so as you put these together then, a helper who is suitable, I think we get three takeaways. One, that she is like, the woman is like the man. She is like him. Unlike all the other creatures, and this will be driven home, unlike all the other creatures, she is like the man. She, she bears the image of, of God. She is intellectual. She has eternity in her heart, visually, physically, however it is. She is like the man. Secondly, she is not like the man. <laughs> in that she is opposite, and that's that idea of like-opposite. She is his perfect counterpart by design. but Visually, you can see that easily. But also by rule and by how God has equipped and how God commands. That they are suitable. They are helpers. They are alike and they are not alike. And then finally, that together they image Christ and fulfill the task of creation in a way that they cannot do alone. That in marriage, or in community, to expand it a little bit for application, they mirror, they image God in a different way than they can by themselves, as we talked about. Of that submitting to one another, of that honoring, of that relational aspect Just like as we would think about God in the covenant of redemption. We see in John 17 as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit as they work together. And so that together, man and woman, alike and not alike, image their God in a way that they can't by themselves. Just a little application before... We move on and get in more hot water here. <clears throat> From the beginning it, it sets up that there is more fulfillment and joy in codependence than in independence. That it is not giving something up to enter into community, to to take on a role, to honor the other. It's not that you're becoming less, but you are becoming more. (laughs) That's the way from the beginning that it sets up. C.S. Lewis says, um, how does he say it? Oh, I can't find it. Oh, fulfillment is on the far side of sustained, unselfish service. Fulfillment is on the far side of sustained, unselfish service. In the idea that it's not kind of an independent pursuit of personal fulfillment. And if I have to give up any of that, then I become less happy or less of, of who I am. But no, you become more of who you were created to be as you give up independence and you move into to codependence in community and caring for others. And so we have this set up even in the very beginning as he describes the woman that he is going to make as a helper, as fit for the man. Then in just the context of the story, it seems a little odd then how it's placed because then you get to verse 19. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So I'm going to make, he's not good man, is alone. I'm going to make a helper who is fit for him. And then he starts parading all the animals by Adam, and Adam assigns names to them. It's worth pausing to see Adam continuing to cultivate creation, to see how God equipped him with an intellect and an awareness of the earth that he was part of. We talked about an earthling made of the earth, as it says there in Genesis 2, formed from the dust of the ground, and how he, <clears throat> just the uh, the ability to know the function of animals and, and to be able to name them, and just the incredible design God created Adam with, and that ex- intellectual ability. There's a lot of conversation about how the fall maybe affected that intellectual ability, but whatever it is, you see that God equipped him. But I think Moses places it here to really drive home the point at the end of, Verse 18, or verse 19, or verse 20, sorry. So they all parade by him in the verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So it's not good that he's alone. He brings all the creatures by, and he sees there, there's nothing. And kind of raising for Adam the awareness that there is a need for you. There isn't any helper who is fit for you at this point. And so then we get to verse 21 and 22, and we have the creation then of Eve. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So You have really this kind of beautiful, poetical formation of woman from the rib of man. There's a lot of conversation about the significance of it being the rib. I think it points primarily to this intimacy and codependence. You see it when Adam... Names them at the end, man and woman, the same. They belong together, and yet they're different. I think a real beautiful and true statement, though I don't know how exegetical, Matthew Henry says this concerning woman being made out of the rib. He says, The woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think a beautiful and a true sentiment. Um, I don't know, you get all that in the exegesis of it, but nonetheless, it's pretty. So you see this creation, and we do see then that both the way Eve was created, or woman was created, not given the name Eve yet, and the order in which they were created do set up and teach us about the role of man and woman that God gives to them. And we know it because everywhere in the New Testament where it speaks about husband and wife and how they are to act and what their roles are towards one another, it refers to Genesis 2. It goes back to it all the time. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her own husband. The head of Christ is God. For man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. The woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made of man, so now man is born of woman. You see that codependence. Woman is taken from the side of man and formed and made. Dependent upon man in that sense. And then going forward, all mankind is dependent upon woman as man is taken from woman, formed and crafted in the womb. But he refers directly to our creation story in Genesis 2 when it comes to speaking of the role of headship and submission. 1 Timothy 2, here it's speaking to the church and how men and women are to function in the church. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to excessive authority, exercise authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Ephesians 5. Let's just flip to Ephesians 5 for a minute and we'll make some application here. Starting in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, right from Genesis 2. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. But we see it again in Matthew. We see it again in First Peter, we see it again in Mark, as it refers back to creation then in the genders created and the roles assigned with it. Submission and headship. I know it's like, it, it can be uncomfortable for people to talk about and to use those terms, and yet God has created it for man to be the head, to lead his family, and for a wife to be submissive. And again, in that sense of a suitable helper, a strong helper who comes alongside of to accomplish things. I think so often when we look at and try to define marriage, we, we start at Genesis 3 and work forward and think, you know, it's so messed up because, because of the fall, men don't fulfill their role of headship properly. In that they abuse it they, they will be dominant or abusive in some sort of sense of I'm the king of my castle and everybody better get on board which is totally the opposite of how it is described in Ephesians 5 but I think that actually is less often the case than men just they don't lead because they're too lazy because headship takes two things it takes responsibility and it takes sacrifice It takes responsibility to see how is my family built together? Who is my wife? How do I understand her? How can I make it so that she flourishes in who she is? And as a family, we flourish in who we are. That we persevere till the end. That we enter heaven. (laughs) Just as Christ worked for his church to enter without blemish and without spot. How do I take the responsibility? It's not in the sort of, I'm in charge, I get my way. It's no, God, by my role, through creation, through the fabric of creation, has said you are responsible. You're responsible to see the wife flourish, to see her talents and her skills and, and her life thrive. You're responsible to see her faith persevere till the end. And you're responsible, so now you make the sacrifices to see that happen. You lay aside your interests. You lay aside your time. You lay aside whatever it might be. You lay aside your life to see your wife, to see your family grow and flourish. Headship is, is rarely a position of power. It's a position of sacrifice, of giving, a giving of who you are. And it's much easier for us just to neglect that as men and, and to say, oh, headship, and, and we use whatever excuse we want because we don't want to take the responsibility and we don't want to make the sacrifice. You see that, not to steal Adam's sermon in Genesis 3, but you see it in the fall. He, he doesn't take the responsibility. He doesn't make the sacrifice, and so as soon as something goes wrong, he just points the finger at Eve. And so as men... We're in a culture, and we sit around and we play video games for 20 hours a week. And when something goes wrong, we say, well, that was your idea. Headship is to mirror Christ. We see what that means, right? That Christ laid down his life for the sake of his bride, the church. For whatever the church needed to flourish... Whatever the church needed then to make it to eternal rest, he provided. It's responsibility and it's sacrifice. It's built into the fabric of creation as it's developed through the New Testament. It's put back to Genesis 2. This is what it means. For women with submission, again, it's turned into like, well, you're second tier or you're not worth as much we can be sloppy in the way we communicate it but i think again we look to jesus christ as the example you look to philippians 2 kind of a willingness to submit to god the father to to set aside his his own rights for the sake of the father it was done joyfully. It was done willingly. It was to, done to accomplish the purposes of God. And it was received with delight and it was received with reward. And so, submission, it, it's, it's less about what I have to give up. And again, it's mirroring Jesus Christ, it's the fabric of who I was made to be in order that we can image our God properly. It takes a headship and the responsibility. It takes a sacrifice, a man, for a woman. It takes that you don't work against your husband in his work to see you flourish, in his work to see your family, and you enter and persevere. That you don't work against him or you don't try to work in place of him. But that you are suitable. You come together like opposites, with different roles, that's what we talk about complementarianism or being complementary. It's not an idea of, of status, one better than the other, or, or that you're somehow not equal in, in imaging your God. But you were created for different roles and that together you image God in those. Now I get it's difficult for women to walk in that sort of role when the husband fails in his headship. So I tend to put most of the onus on men, that it's not, again, a a culturally mandated what does masculinity look like. Are you an arm wrestling champ? Are you fixing a car? Are you, I don't know, can you grow a beard? As I look around to see who can't. Isaac's turned all red, can you grow a beard? (laughs) But it is taking responsibility of dwelling with your wife in understanding. Doing what it takes then to see her and to see you together flourishing. Which is not a, I'm a king of my castle, but it's making the sacrifices and, and leading and taking the responsibility of leading and disciplining your children and raising them up. They would see in you God their father, that they would be disciplined and Godliness, and you don't just give all that to your wife to do so you can be the fun dad. Back in Genesis 2, You see Adam's response or man's response. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's kind of just an ecstatic like, yes, (laughs) finally. I didn't even know I was missing this. This is perfect. This sort of overjoy, this shout of, of praise for the woman. And then she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's kind of a similar word used for man and woman, just um, sort of two different forms of it. And again, it kind of highlights that sameness and difference. They're codependence. Then you continue in verse 24 and 25, and we have two more comments. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And here you have the marriage covenant established from the very beginning. It, it used covenantal language, this idea of, we hear at leave and cleave, but the idea of forsaking and clinging. If you look through Genesis, especially in Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, this language, these same verbs of, of forsaking and clinging, it's covenantal language used of God and his people. Forsaking all else and laying hold of and cleaving to. This covenantal language is described for us right from the very beginning. Matthew, Mark, they both refer to it in the when we're thinking about marriage and divorce. And... Mark, the, the, the question is asked to Jesus, is the divorce permissible? You remember that? And the, the Pharisees are trying to snare and snare Jesus, they're trying to trap him, because they know that Moses makes an allowance, but they think however Jesus answers it, if he says there's an allowance, then he's going to undermine marriage. If he says there's not allowance, then he won't know his law. And so they ask Jesus, and he says, Jesus answers basically, Moses makes an allowance because of sin. Marriage was never intended to end in divorce. That's the wrong question. The wrong question isn't, am I allowed? How can I? When can I do it? The question is the sanctity of marriage. And he quotes then from Genesis 2. God has brought them together. Let not man divide them. They shall leave their father and mother And they shall become one. They shall become one flesh together. Verse 25. And then we'll make a couple comments and be done. Verse 25 is really just kind of a lingering comment that that sets us up for the fall in Genesis 3. You'll be happy to know Pastor Adam has figured out how evil and God's sovereignty, how that coexists. So he's going to be explaining to us the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> Solving a lot of problems the world has faced for a long time. But for now, it says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This idea of, of before the fall. But I do think it's interesting that the genders and having spe- specific roles and, and how it was created, again, looking back to Genesis 2 to establish that all through the New Testament, that that was not a shameful or a, a, a bad thing in any way. It was perfect bliss. When fulfilled properly, it was perfect fellowship and bliss. There wasn't something lacking. There wasn't something not good about it. It wasn't because of the fall that now it has to work out this way. It was created to be this way, and there was no shame in it. Of course, here, anytime as we talk about marriage, we have a picture of Christ in his church, don't we? Adam goes into a deep sleep. Now, his rib, God, literally the verb there, builds him a bride. The same word is used in the Psalms and the Prophets to talk about God building His heavenly sanctuary. I don't think it's a stretch. Out of first Adam, the bride is built. And on the second Adam, the church is built. Jesus is both like us and unlike us. In his humanity, he is like us. In his divinity, he is unlike us. God sends Christ to come to get his rebellious and wayward bride. Jesus is the perfect groom for us, a suitable helper for us. Upon the cross, his side is opened up and slit so that his bride might have life. The second Adam wins back the bride that the first Adam lost. When we awake out of our slumber, we sing out this hymn, how beautiful that is. From the beginning, it points us to Christ and the church, and as God would build, and it says that then he takes and he brings that bride, as the father of the bride brings him, presents him, her, to the husband, You see this beautiful union, and we are, even in these early moments, instructed on how Christ will save his church. So, husbands, wives, on the idea of marriage, protect your marriage. (laughs) Be faithful in your marriage. God has brought you together. It is by God's creation and by God's ordinance that marriage exists. It's not just some cultural idea. The same idea of gender and how what God did, it's part of created fabric, and with that creative fabric is a specific role and commandments given. It's not a punishment. It's not to be despised, but when it is recognized, when it is pursued, in the same way Christ pursues humility and submission, the same way Christ gives his life for the church, in the same ways as we pursue Christ, man and, and woman in it, it is beautiful. There's no shame in that to reflect and image and mirror our God. For those who aren't married then, how, you know, we kind of, I, I don't want to Build this sort of devastating case that if you're not married, you're not in the image of God. You're still called to community. There's not an independence in that you, you know, because you're not married, you can now live for yourself and yourself alone. Your satisfaction, your your happiness, is wrapped up in Christ and belong. The church becomes that much more important to you that in the community of faith. As you submit to others, as you serve others, as they care for you back and forth in that community of faith, you mirror your God. So don't make it an idol. And at the same time, don't desire it too little. And you don't escape the call of sacrificing for the sake of others just because you're not married. Let our marriages reflect our God. Let's pray.